Welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. Kate here. Happy New Year! We are welcoming the new year with our first anniversary episode. For this 10th edition, we have a very special guest. It was my honor to be able to interview Professor Dora Angelaki. You may notice that the different parts of the interview have slightly different background noise levels. This is because Professor Angelaki was a guest speaker at the retreat organized by the RTG, which is my grant program. This retreat took part in Venice, and Professor Angelaki was highly sought after, but despite this fact, she was kind enough to sacrifice several coffee breaks for an interview with me. And I could not be more grateful. Professor Angelaki is currently at NYU investigating the influence of the vestibular system on the spatial coding in the mammalian brain. I should emphasize currently, since Professor Angelaki as she explains in our conversation, has a policy of completely changing her research focus every 8 to 10 years. Personally, I find this admirable. It takes extraordinary confidence to switch gears when the competition for grants is more intense than ever, and the chances of success are highly dependent on the previous work of the lab. Even more importantly, I think it takes outstanding intellectual honesty and courage to delve into an entirely new area and start learning from scratch. In a world full of complacent individuals knowing the ins and outs of one very tiny area, such approach is a refreshing reminder that even if the orthodoxy insists on committing to extreme specialization for the entirety of one's career, individuals can rise up to the challenge of becoming sequential specialists like Professor Angelaki. I hope you enjoy this episode and get inspired to dare yourself in 2019. So, usually I like to start chronologically. Your background is in engineering, and I was wondering how that education has influenced how you view neuroscience problems today. Uh, absolutely, it has uh, influenced it a lot, because al- always in everything I do, I try to find the underlying principle, because I ultimately want to understand how each piece and all, uh, each piece works and how all the pieces are put together. So this is a very engineering-like thinking. So even when I read the paper or when I listen to a talk, I try to always see the big picture of Mm -hmm. how this fits into a normative uh, framework about how the brain works. Now I've seen that you're also, given your appointment, working more with clinicians and exploring the uh, autism disorders and other... While I was at Baylor. Yes. Uh, For the first time I became interested in disease because I realized that certain aspects of uh, cognitive, of complicated cognitive disorders that are spectrum, uh, that are not a a fixed genetic disease Mm -hmm. but more like a spectrum. I read the literature and I realized that there may be an an additional um, way to look at cognitive disease which is from a computational perspective. So perhaps because the brain is a machine after all, it's not just a collection of cells like the liver uh, or the kidney. I have been trying to extract, by reading the literature first, I have tried to extract, again, principles 
to help me form, formulate much more normative uh, uh, hypotheses about what has gone wrong in autism or schizophrenia. And I think other people are starting to do the same. I'm not just the only one. Uh, so one of the things that I have, uh, uh, so I have a hypothesis right now, I developed a hypothesis mm -hmm. actually several years ago and then I have been testing it since then, that perhaps what goes wrong, a common signature uh, in uh, autism is that a, um, a particular canonical uh, uh, computation in the brain which uh, can have uh, many names, uh, the way it's known in the computational neuroscience is hierarchical predictive causal inference, but you can also think of it as a, as a, a non-linear computation that uh, is repeated in multiple sensory, multi-sensory, cognitive, social domains, which this is the ability to allow us to uh, get the signals from the environment, but then use our previous experience, internal models, to interpret what happens to the world based on fragmented sensory information. Uh, so this may be, this is the common signature of what really underlies the uh, autistic uh, phenotype, the autistic spectrum. And so I've started doing some experiments, and actually so far the experiments support, the results support the hypothesis. Of course, the hypothesis may be wrong, but I think, but I think it, gives, it gives everybody a way to start thinking of cognitive disease as much more than just a gene or a molecule, which is the classical way that clinicians think about the problem. So when you do interact with clinicians, do you find that they are receptive uh, to this way of thinking? Um, some are, some aren't. <laughs> um, so, so the past two weeks I've given, I've given two lectures. Uh, the last one was uh, about, about this hypothesis. Mm -hmm. The last one was at the, a group uh, uh, funded by the Simons Foundation mm -hmm. to do to do autism research, and most of them were are molecular biology, geneticists. Um, and so basically I ended up my talk uh, saying that uh, I don't see lots of computational neuroscientists in the group, actually nobody, and that I think the community will benefit by having more closer associ associations uh, with these people who are the only ones who can bridge the gap between the cell and the circuit with a phenotype, with a behavior. Because there is no other way to, to go from one level to the other level, only by uh, using computational neuroscience. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting <laughs> reaction, but, uh, but um, I think that uh, a seed was placed somewhere in their brain, and uh, if they hear it again by somebody else, it uh, they may be more receptive and then this is how science this is how it progresses yes and it, it does seem like there is a sort of breaking point in neuroscience now where there is an opportunity to move to really large-scale initiatives and coordinated efforts and i think that uh, international brain laboratory is one of the prime examples of this movement and having spoken briefly about it with kenneth harris and now read that it is one year anniversary, so happy birthday to uh, Brain yeah. Laboratory. I was wondering, because there was also mentioned that it is both a social and a scientific experiment. Yes. So, so now, given that you have an experience that is year-long 
in your opinion, what has been the greater challenge, science or, or coordinating the people within it? The social part is the greatest challenge. It is, uh, it is actually extremely interesting. I think we can be an experiment, like some sociologists should be also present to study the, the collective decision and uh, the problems associated with 21 scientists trying to agree on something. Uh, because this is the principle behind IBL, that uh, we will be choosing to do all the same behavior, the same way. Uh, so in a way, we are uh, not going to uh, use our individual freedom, which is really probably the number one reason that pushed all of us to science. Um, so we are, I, I consider we are not like an average population, we are really perhaps the extreme that likes independence and likes to do whatever we want to do. And here we are trying to do something against what we've done. Up. And the other challenge is that uh, we, what will come out of this work will be a collective. It's not going to be something with, uh, of mine, but it's going to be a group effort, which again puts uh, a different meaning to how we are rewarded from what we are used to up to now. Uh, so all of these are challenges. I think uh, all of us, well, for sure, most of us, uh, whether it's all of us, only time will show, will show, um, are determined to do this. It's challenging, but also I think it's the way of the future, the way neuroscience is going. There is no way that a single lab will be able to do competitive, meaningful science going forward. I got trained in the early, late 80s, early 90s, where, yes, we were rewarded for doing stuff myself. In fact, you were not supposed to get help from anybody. It was like all about you are not worthwhile if you don't do it yourself. Uh, and now it's like completely different. And so I'm pretty much changing uh, the whole outlook of how science is. And uh, many of my generation perhaps are not easily flexible to make that change, but I am, I love to change. So it's, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited about seeing the social experiments succeed and also seeing the science succeed because our goal, as you know, is to uh, manage to to break the code to understand a simple behavior all the way what happens across the brain which is a daunting task I hope that we will manage to achieve our goal so this is one sort of flavor of this change in neuroscience but another is organizations like Allen Brain Institute and I saw that uh, on your recent meeting Christoph Koch was present so I wonder how you see your interaction with those types of initiatives do you see them as complementary efforts <coughs> yes they're complementary some people have asked us why isn't this why do we do it isn't uh, just uh, don't they do it for us and um, the answer is no. The biggest difference I see is that their goal is very different. If they had done this goal, we would be happy and not do it. But uh, we want to understand the behavior. Mm -hmm. They are thinking more at the traditional level of connectomics and uh, looking at it from bottom up rather than from top down. And for us, all 21 for, of us, we believe that we need to study the brain in action. But, uh, of course, we will use the anatomy uh, is fundamental in all of this. However, 
there is much more than just uh, characterizing uh, the anatomy and the molecular signal. This is the biggest difference mm -hmm. uh, that motivates us. The other difference is that we are still scientists as, at these universities. The Allen Institute has a different feel and a different organization. I mean, I think we still try to maintain our academic curiosity and freedom, but I think this is a smaller difference than the first one. For sure, and well, the curiosity that you retain in academia definitely manifests in your lab's publication. So I was very challenged to choose one paper to ask you about, and what I decided to do instead was to ask you what is the paper that you like the most that not many people appreciate as much as you think that paper deserves? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> At different times I will choose different uh, papers because I change what I do. I don't do the same type of research yes. for more than 10 years. So there is always a common, uh, there is always a common signature. Uh, perhaps most of my work is related to the visual or the vestibular mm -hmm. system, or it's related somehow to orientation or navigation or something like this. But at different times, because I change interests, uh, there are different, uh, I can choose different uh, topics. Right now, because I completely changed uh, my what I do and how I do it in the past three years, right now what excites me the most is uh, a few recent perspectives that uh, my lab has uh, written one uh, they were both published in neuron uh, one of them is uh, which was published in 2017 is about how to um, use more naturalistic behaviors and how to do more quantitative modeling of the behavior, which can then guide you in trying to find the neural signatures. And this is what we are doing now in my lab. And then the second um, perspective was published earlier this year, and it is uh, its purpose is to uh, link the vestibular system with the navigation, with what's happening to the navigation cells and how multi-sensory signals uh, determine the properties of the, of the head direction cells, the grid cells and the play cells. And reading the literature, it was clear that there was a misunderstanding because people, the two fields have been fragmented. Mm -hmm. People either understand the navigation system or they understand the vestibular system or the multi-sensory and there had not been a lot of people who had breached the gap. Uh, so we have proposed um, uh, a set of hypotheses which uh, we are also testing and in fact this is what I'm going to uh, discuss today in the afternoon where we think that can help uh, the field connect, the two fields connect with each other. So, so these are two new directions of research Excuse me. that I am excited now. But, but overall I like to change um, uh, topics because I always, I don't like to do what I already have been doing because after five or ten years I think people become rigid in their thinking and uh, so I like, and I get bored personally, so I like to change such that I can get excited again and read something new and be a student again. Yeah, that, that is uh, not something that is very widespread in senior researchers no. or anything. And no. especially, I think, the system as it is now is, uh, if anything, opposed to it. Because if you have a body of research on a certain topic, it's 
it way, it is way easier to get more funding on the same yeah. topic. Yep. Yep. So I've always used the funding from the previous topic to support the research <laughs> of the new topic. I know I'm not supposed to do that. In this particular case, uh, though, I could do it directly. And uh, the reason is the, uh, the U.S. Brain Initiative. Mm-hmm. For me, the U.S. Brain Initiative has changed the way we do science in the U.S., which finally uh, it has happened because the regular NIH system is completely broken completely broken. It kills innovation and um, because exactly because it it forbids you because you must have published three papers and have done what you propose to do before you get funded the traditional way which is extremely bad. But the Brain Initiative has allowed people to really push the envelope and so the, the new directions of research that I'm following they actually I have gotten funding from the brain initiative. But sometimes now seeing papers, especially technique focused as brain initiative tends to be really promoting the methodological innovation. I'm wondering whether it really is using the potential that it has to the fullest because when this is when this funding system is transposed onto the traditional small lab system, what at least as a junior observer it, it seems to me is happening is that there are many mind-blowing technique papers about like flexible nanoprobes and and free photon imaging and what have you but then this technique stays in this lab because it is very hard to set up and, and yeah. yeah so that is always a challenge and again that's why collaboration becomes very important but the brain initiative is on is not all about techniques so i don't develop any new techniques this does not interest me at all. I let other people do this. Um, I want to push the the conceptual framework uh, forward. Uh, even though I'm an engineer, I prefer more the science part of things. So the Brain Initiative has also, that's why I think it was really very nicely done in the US. Yes, the original funding had a big component, new techniques, but it was not just that. Um, it promoted new theories. Um, it funded uh, new approaches recording globally from the brain using existing uh, um, uh, technology. So, in fact, all my funding was based on the- developing new theories and um, communication, understanding more communication across areas. So this is something that is uh, easily doable by, uh, by the new generation also. Again, I think that collaboration the field has changed we cannot uh, we cannot continue the way i was trained even the young people now and even though they have to make their careers they also have to think about more broader collaborations because nobody uh, can do everything themselves uh, any longer it's really impossible so it's challenge it's challenging but it's also i think a great opportunity because we will see in the next 10, 20 years much more uh, success than we ever saw, I think, in my scientific. That is a really nice segue to the next question that I wanted to ask. How would you define success in science? And because you've moved so many times and interacted with so many people, I think even with more people than many senior researchers, what, in your view, distinguishes average or mediocre scientist from a really excellent scientist? Flexibility, uh, innovation, (laughs) but also um, 
careful in implementing uh, this because one can also butterfly without paying attention to the detail. But some other people are too, um, too focused and too restrained and too afraid to open their wings. So the compromise, it's a nice compromise between the two. Not to be afraid to be bold, but at the same time try to be careful of how you do it. And, and I think this will be, this, this ability to innovate and to see beyond your uh, small research uh, focus is really fundamental. So I was able to locate your CV from 2012. So it, this is already six years ago. And already at six years ago, it was 35 pages long, uh, listing all your service activities. And I was wondering whether your active participation in seminars, reviewing committees, hiring committees, and also at a certain point being an editor of the Journal of Neuroscience, is part of the strategy of, of keeping your uh, eyes open. Yes. I, I, for me, uh, that the motivation to do it is exactly because I wanted to open my horizons and keep them open. I don't do it any longer, actually. Uh, I became, I was a chair of the department for five years and that killed, uh, that changed everything. But, uh, but I think that 20 years before that I did that and I was spending many hours per day and per week and per month doing all of these things, uh, really helped me maintain a broad, uh, a broad vision. So if people want to do it, I enjoyed also doing it. So I think people have to really enjoy doing it. Most often, I think the, the two are correlated. So the people who have the broad vision are the people who also do these things the most. I don't know what's the chicken, what's the egg, <laughs> but I think looking at it, for sure the two are correlated. Just one small question about your sojourn as an editor of the Journal of Neuroscience. Has this experience changed in any way how you now craft your papers and how you interact with editors from the other end? Oh, completely. Yes, absolutely. So I learned how to write. So I, I first became an editor, uh, a reviewing editor for the Journal of Neurophysiology, like I don't know, 20 years ago. And I learned how to write at that time because I come from a field where uh, we typically published in the Journal of Neurophysiology. And we, uh, once I was accused that I store my data in the Journal of Neurophysiology, meaning that I just put all the details without <laughs> distilling it and matching it. Um, a colleague of mine uh, said that once. Uh, in a good in a good way, but uh, but nevertheless, mm -hmm. I, um, I realized that many times uh, a superb research about an interesting topic um, can be written in a way that will be read by only five people or less, or the same thing can be written to be read by a thousand people and understand it. And so that has really changed uh, the way I, I approach science. Uh, so yes, it has influenced me in how I write my papers. And yes, uh, it has influenced me in the way that I interact with editors also. Because I, to see it from the other side is also, uh, is also important. First one, what is the skill or skills that you wish you had acquired earlier on in your career? <laughs> Patience. 
<laughs> that's something you everyone has programming so please elaborate really? <laughs> yeah. yeah no no um if anything i probably should have had a better molecular biology background mm-hmm. um because i i i got some in graduate school but then i didn't follow up and by the time i wanted to use it I, science had progressed so much yeah but not programmed but actually now that i'm thinking of it i have a, a follow-up question related to what we discussed before so n- now when you make these drastic changes every 10 years how do you go about learning about your new field like do you start with a textbook with a uh, yeah so mm-hmm. i i start by reading but also i then spend uh, some time in somebody's else lab or um, I start a collaboration and I do th- this through a collaboration. Mm. So I don't do it completely blind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what I do depends on the topic. Like this time that I moved into the navigation field, I just read for, uh, for my monkey work, I just read the literature. Mm-hmm. And for the mouse stuff, I spent six weeks in the Moser lab. Um, just to get a feeling about mm-hmm. uh, some of the issues involved and then I recruited postdocs um, to basically do the work with. But when you read, how far do you think it's necessary to go? So would you go as far back as hippocampus the cognitive map or would you think that it's completely irrelevant now and let's focus on what was published in the last No, typically years. I go back all the way. Now for the hippocampal literature, there is no way one can read it um, uh, easily. But uh, for the other cell types, I've read all of it. For the hippocampus, I cannot say I did because it can ex- it's, it's huge, it's enormous. Um, but yeah, I go back, I went back all the way to the 80s, mm-hmm. 70s and 80s. And I typically devote a concentrated amount of time, like uh, couple of months, uh, okay. uh, full-time um, uh, immersion into the topic. And, and do you have any sort of progression, so start broad and then focus on, on the other hand, start from a small detail and then from there go back to the issues? I typically start from reviews and okay. I get a quick um, idea about the field and then I go back and I read uh, the papers in detail. Connected to that, the second question is, what is, your, in your opinion, the most successful theory in neuroscience today? Statistical inference. I don't want to call it necessarily Bayesian. This idea of thinking of perception as a probabilistic inference. I know it's not widely received yet, uh, but for me, this is the most uh, successful approach if we want to understand the brain. And what would you say is the most common misconception about this framework for people who are not completely immersed in it? That it's too abstract, and it is abstract, and it can uh, have uh, multiple biological... Uh, it, can, it can be done in different ways when it comes down to circuits or, uh, uh, or molecules or genes or whatever. So it's for many people, it's hard to bridge the gap um, all the way. It's easy to apply the framework to perception, but it's harder to apply it to the level of the cell and belong. Mm. Uh, and it's not a misconception, it's, um, it's a true difficulty, mm. even though people more and more in the past years, they try to bring it down to at least uh, the circuit level.
but still lots of work needs to be done. The last question is, on the other side of the spectrum, what is a piece of data from your lab or from any other lab that has been published recently that you are most excited about? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> that's tough. Uh, because as you say, a single. Uh, you can have multiple. <laughs> <laughs> um, the most recent, I, I, I can speak globally about uh, two, two different types of studies. I won't say, because there are two or three papers that have come out in, this, in each of these topics. One is um, uh, interactions between areas. Uh -huh. um, and in particular, there have been two recent papers uh, showing interactions between the cortex and the cerebellum. Uh -huh. And uh, these two fields have remained completely segregated, uh, both uh, in the monkey and in the rodent uh, literature. The people who study the cere cerebellum typically stay there, and the people who study the cortex typically stay there. And what they found is that uh, if you manipulate the cerebellum, you affect the cognitive signature that um, people have seen in cortex, like you can call it evidence accumulation, mm -hmm. ramping activity, or uh, working memory, or whatever name you want to give them, to destroy the cerebellum, and it's uh, completely destroyed in the, in the cortex. Mm -hmm. So this, I'm not surprised about the result, because I, for me the cerebellum is a, uh, a subroutine that the cortex needs to call um, at different times to do different things whenever it needs an internal mm -hmm. model creation or online mainten maintenance. Um, this is one type and, uh, of work. The other type, which is related, is the simultaneous recording from more than one area and trying to understand the uh, communication among areas and the realization that most functions are not limited to one or two or three areas. It's just activities found <laughs> in many, many areas, which really tells us a little bit about uh, what we have been doing wrong up to now, which, of course, we did it wrong because we didn't have the tools, but um, nevertheless, it gives also great momentum for the future. Thank you for listening. If you have any comments or feedback, feel free to leave a review on our website gsnmunich.wordpress.com or drop me an email at e.sytnik at campus.lmu.de. I hope to hear from you soon.